So I've got a good example of the power of myth. Oh, okay. Let's hear it. So I was in the car this morning taking my kids to school. Right, My son's five. My daughter's two. And, you know, normal chit-chat. We were talking about um, Polyphemus. We were talking about <laughs> the Odyssey. Right. Um, and I was telling my son all about Odysseus and how his men, you know, escaped by grabbing on to the bottom of the sheep. Um, and he's, he's so clever. And my son waited a second and he said, I bet if he got really hungry, he could eat a lot of those sheep. And I said, yeah, but primarily he uses them to make cheese, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, my son said, no, because cheese comes from cows. And I said, no, cheese can come from sheep too. And it blew his mind. <laughs> and then we had yeah. then we had a conversation about whether Kraft uh, American cheese singles are actually cheese or not. Uh, but he learned. My son learned through myth about different types of cheeses. I love that. It was a touching moment. And then my daughter told him to shut up. <laughs> Welcome to the All Roads Podcast, uh, where we connect antiquity with the present, but we do more than that. We share our love for the ancient world. I'm your host, Dr. Sam Kindick. And I'm Sam Hahn. Let's do this. Yeah. This is episode two, talking about the Sea of Monsters. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation about Jason and all of the other connections that we made to, to the ancient world. Uh, but the obvious thing that we didn't talk enough about on that episode was the Odyssey, which this book is unmistakably influenced by. And I think there are so many different things that we could talk about. There are a lot of obvious surface level connections between the Sea of Monsters and the Odyssey. Um, I think it's very funny um, that the connection to the story of Penelope is made through grover in that opening scene where he steals a wedding dress and you know is kidnapped by the cyclops polyphemus to be wed and the only way that grover is able to you know keep up the ruse to the nearly blind polyphemus is by unraveling um the tapestry in this sealed off room in the cave um an obvious very fun connection uh to the odyssey and i think i think um Uncle Rick has a lot of fun um, playing off of the themes in the Odyssey um, throughout this book um, and is a great lover of Homer, as I know you are, too. Um, I, re I was really tickled uh, throughout this book. Well, uh, let's dive into it. Like uh, Annabeth chasing the sirens. Yeah. She dives in, right? <laughs> and then she swims. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's All true. right. All right. Enough of that. No more nonsense. Yeah. So this is interesting because, as you said, I mean, this is a story that's about Polyphemus. It's about all these Odyssean elements, right? And it's about sailing around, going to various monstrous locations um, in search of um, a, a, a task, which is which is a little bit different than the Odyssey because because this is just trying to go home. 
But it, it's also interesting because as we talked about last episode, there are argonautic elements. There's this golden fleece. But there's also, you know, scenes from the Odyssey that we saw in the first book. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the lotus eaters, things like that. So what do you what do you make of this? What do you make of this uh you know, Odyssey as quest for Percy and Annabeth? Uh, I mean, I think on the one hand, it is kind of the natural place to begin for the son of Poseidon, right? It's just like, what a better place to have, especially now that he's embraced his power, right? He's he's firm in his identity until, you know, Tyson comes along and there is a little bit of an existential crisis that Percy has <laughs> about his identity as a son of Poseidon. But, you know, it it is, it is the kind of the natural evolution, right? What a better place for the son of Poseidon to have an adventure than in the water on the seas, Um, you know, and, you know, the connection between, you know, the Cyclops being sons and daughters of Poseidon, obviously Tyson being a half brother, a step brother, um, you know, ties us also to Polyphemus and also the, the notorious hatred between Odysseus and Poseidon, right? Why does it take so long for Odysseus to come home? It's, you know, Polyphemus's curse, um, you know, for Odysseus to wander and come home late and, and all of these different things. So there's, there's obviously a strong connection between Poseidon and a lot of what happens in the Odyssey. Um, so that's obviously going on. And it's just so memorable. Again, I loved teaching the Odyssey to students because most of the Odyssey is not the parts of the Odyssey people know. People know the Cyclops. People know Circe. People, you know, know a handful of these kind of famous, you know, vignettes that take up not all that much of the book, actually. The book is very long, right? It's a long, epic poem. And the parts that people know are the story that Odysseus tells the Phaeacians himself over the course of a couple of books. Yeah. I think essentially it's, I think it's five books, like all the, all the monsters right. and everything is like five books and it's a 24 book poem. Right. Um, and so I love teaching the Odyssey because you get to say, okay, what, what is actually the Odyssey about? Like it is really not about these stories. They tie into the bigger themes, but, um, uh, that's why I love teaching it. And, and, but again, those stories are so memorable, just like we talked about in the first book, right? Medusa is immediately recognizable. Um, again, I think the polyphemous story is kind of notorious and most people have heard it. Um, but again, I, I, I enjoyed all of the, um, again, I, I talked about this in the previous episode, but, um, there are all there's more nuance and there's more detail and there's more kind of careful playing with myth happening in this book again as we're getting a little bit of an older audience um and it, it is cool that we bring in um things like um oh the lystragonians like i think that's very very fun again a famous name to people who study mythology, but probably less familiar to people. And again, the kind of first monsters that we encounter in the book are the cannibalistic Lystragonians. And it's a great moment in the Odyssey too, because it's very visceral and 
gross because you know they come to this island and Odysseus sends some men to scout ahead and they come to this court and there's these monstrous kind of humans and they take one of the companions and start you know cooking him and the other two run back and the Lystragonians kind of pour out and there's this great image of them skewering Odysseus's crewmates and eating them like fish which is just like so visceral in the Odyssey and to have that you know pulled up um in this book was uh, I, I quite enjoyed but they don't um they don't play dodgeball they don't play dodgeball well not that we know of again we've lost a lot of um uh ancient myths so who knows uh no so I've I've uh Slightly more serious question. I mean, I one of the things that I really like about these Percy Jackson books um, is that, right, I mean, obviously at a very superficial level, they, they engage with classical culture. They right. engage with the, 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 the classical text, the Greek and the Roman text that, you know, we both study. Um, but my, I mean, my, the type of scholarship I do um, in my day job is I, I look at texts and I look for connections between texts, right? I look for little mm-hmm. references, whether it's a, a, a phrase, a word, right. a theme. And I never know, right? I don't know how, how deep uncle Rick is going. I never know if something is a reference or it's not. And my, my little mind is, 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 is like a little Guinea pig in a cage. Um, <laughs> Spinning and on the island of Circe, exactly. We'll, we'll which we'll get to. CC's spa. Um, so like these Lystragonians, right? One of them's name is like Jim Bob, mm-hmm. right? And he keeps talking about baby cakes, or he's got like a tattoo that says "I love baby cakes" or something like this. Mm-hmm. Is that any like? Is that is that just supposed to be funny, or is that like some sort of? Yeah, I, I think, I think. You know, when when people talk about these episodes in the Odyssey, a lot of it is this kind of setup between like Greeks and non-Greeks, right? The Lystragonians are supposed to be monstrous and a reflection of, you know, kind of humans. Again, they're kind of more monstrous. Um, but again, you know, helping us define what is and is not Greek um, as we kind of, you know, build an identity out of mythology, I I don't I don't know if there are references going on there. I really hadn't thought about it, but you know, my initial impression is like I think it is setting a vibe to be like these are not the sort of um, people like Percy. Like these are kind of like more bullies uh, of a of a sort, and perhaps you know maybe more kind of clumsy in the way that we would expect for a middle grade book, as opposed to like a, you know a James Joyce's Ulysses or something like that. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, I'm too intellectually um, cowardly to ever try to read. Now, this 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 is one of my great life goals: is to read Ulysses. I'd like to both read it and understand it. What that seems like, maybe. A... Well, you can buy a book. There's a companion to Ulysses oh, okay. that you yeah. read the book and then you read the other book and Boom. it tells you what's happening. Two books, um, one book for the price of two. I like mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, and so I th- I think that's a nice. I'm glad you said that. That's sort of the way of. The, the the ocean the, the the ocean the notion in the Odyssey of like what's Greek and what's not right and I think this is central to a lot of Greek myths um, you know famously I think the you know, the the labors of of Heracles are him sort of making the world safe for for 
Greek expansion or something. But I think we see a lot of this increasingly in, in Sea of Monsters, this mm-hmm. notion of us versus them, right? We, and you get it in the first book where there, there are monsters right. everywhere um, and they're the bad guys and they have to be killed. But we start blurring the lines a little bit in Sea of Monsters. Yeah. Right? We get, I mean, we learn that there's like Cyclopses that live in Brooklyn, like a lot of them. I'm not sure what to make of that. Um, but we get a good Cyclops, right, with yeah. Tyson. Which I appreciate, right? It isn't it isn't black and white, right? It isn't as simple as these are monsters and they're inherently evil, which I which I appreciate. Um, but we also start to to blur the sort of lines, and we talked about this a little bit in the last episode of sort of I don't want to say reality, but sort of the normal world in the mythic world, right? Percy and Annabeth and Tyson. You know, they they go on this quest. They go into the Bermuda Triangle. They're they're not in you know they're in monstrous locations. Yeah, for the most part, um, and so it feels like a departure in the same way that that um, Odysseus and the Odyssey, right? He sort of begins in a normal place in Troy, um, and he ends in a normal place in a real place in Ithaca. But what happens between point A and point B? is you know famously impossible to map and people do try this right people mythographers right. try to be like well this was in spain uh the entrance to the underworld is over here right polyphemus is in sicily right exactly um and i think there's more yeah if you dig beneath the surface there's, there's more going on there right. um but it's it there is this sort of journey away from the mundane right and yeah, just kind of out of, there's more encounters with, yeah, again, monsters, the mythological, and again, just this kind of like things that are wrong with like things that are dangerous in a way that is a, a quite a bit different than the first book. Um, again, something that I really love about this book is how it builds very nicely on kind of a central theme of the Odyssey. You know, whenever you, you know, whenever you teach the Odyssey, you have to talk about the Greek concept of Xenia. You know, you may have heard this, you know, we, you hear terms like xenophobia. This is related again, xenophobia, you know, fear of the foreigner, but Xenia is this idea of hospitality, that there is a certain kind of decorum. There are certain privileges that you extend to people who show up at your home. Right. And kind of the traditional way, right. When someone shows up at their, your house, you feed them, you give them a bath and then you ask, who are you? Right. That's kind of the way the Greeks approach hospitality. And the Odyssey is lots of examples of people not following Xenia who refuse to extend that hospitality. And a lot of that has to deal around. Are you feeding yourself or your guests? And are you feeding yourself with your guests? Um, and I do love how much Sea of Monsters builds on this idea of cannibalism kind of throughout, right? Um, again, when we meet the Lystragonians, they're obviously cannibals. They want to eat the kids at the school, you know, and they're planning on taking them out by playing dodgeball. Um, but then, you know, you get to Camp Half-Blood and, you know, who is the new face in town it's it's tantalus 
Um, you know, and he tells his own story where he, you know, fed his own child to the gods as kind of retribution for them taking back, you know, the ambrosia and nectar that he snuck away from Olympus and, you know, feeding your own child to dinner guests is considered a faux pas <laughs> in ancient Greece. And I suppose yeah. modern day then and today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you know, it's a violation of Xenia. That's not how you treat guests. And there are countless examples, you know, people will point to even, you know, Scylla and Charybdis. Charybdis is this kind of like, is a, you know, um, whirlpool vortex, just a massive hole, always consuming, never giving same thing with skill mm. always plucking people out always consuming you know never inviting um what about the sirens i, I i've never heard that that yeah that reading before because the sirens do offer you something it's a it's a deception right maybe that's the problem that they don't come through on their promise but they definitely show you something right, right? and and again for annabeth it's this this notion of rebuilding society right yeah, again, I, I'm not aware of a mythology in which the sirens are eating the people who are lured to them. But again, I think it builds nicely on this. And I think my absolute favorite example, again, I th- we could go on and name a bunch of other examples. Polyphemus obviously plays into this trope too. But my favorite is the Hydra and Monster Donuts um, in the book, which I think is just such a beautiful moment obviously a hydra is just heads and they only and they i mean not just heads but famous for its many heads that keep expanding and do you remember what rick has the hydra be a metaphor for in the book yeah for uh for the chain restaurants yeah which you know i don't know i i thought was was fun i appreciated i, I thought that was very interesting because it is an interesting thing where it is like Chain restaurants are not a place of zinnia or hospitality, mm. right? It's kind of a false, right? You, their goal is not to give you hospitality. It is kind of their own profits and it is kind of um, parasitic in this way um, that I, I found, I found very interesting. I like how Rick inserts his own politics into his books in some very kind of obvious ways. And I, I thought that was a good example of this kind of like, kind of violation of Xenia or just this example of just like excessive consumption with no giving to the people who come by. Um, and what better example of that than a donut shop? I, I, I still don't entirely understand what happens in that scene, right? Why is the donut shop there? I mean, I think, I think that's kind of the point is like, why is this, why is there a Taco Bell in every, every town, right? You know, you, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you know, I, I, when I drive to visit family, we drive through a lot of very small towns and there's always a McDonald's there. And you think, why is there a McDonald's here of all places? Right. It's because it's everywhere. Right. And maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe there is an issue um, with that. And I think that's kind of the point is why would there be this, you know, chain restaurant in the middle of nowhere so it's not it's not like a trap right i mean that tyson goes in and buys like a box of donuts like if percy had gone in and tried to buy a box of donuts would the hydra have just like attacked him yeah i don't yeah i I don't know about maybe the logistics of how it's operating in in the book itself um 
but again, I think I think it is a very powerful image that uh, I I think plays in really nicely to this um, theme of the Odyssey and theme of you know the Sea of Monsters and this kind of like consumption um, and kind of cannibalism. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a really beautiful inverse of that in the book um, when you you know, kind of immediately after uh, that scene, right? They run into Clarice, you know, who's on this, you know, um, Confederate ship um, that her father has, you know, recruited for her with a bunch of dead soldiers. And, um, you know, obviously Percy and Clarice have a very tense relationship out of the first book. Uh but one of the first things they do after they get a tour of the ship is they go down and they have dinner together and they have peanut butter and jelly chips and Dr. Peppers. Um, but there is this kind of extension of hospitality um, by Clarice that you don't really see throughout the book. Um, again, as an example of this is why these people are actually connected and they can actually have this relationship because they kind of share this kind of common courtesy, this common, um, you know, um, social value um, that they extend to one another, even though they are, you know, seemingly enemies. And they do work together and they need to work together, even though right when they get to Polyphemus's island, Clarice really ruins everything by... Right. Uh, revealing by outing uh, Grover as not a Cyclops, right, and as a satyr, and right. uh, I don't know, I'm I'm not a huge fan of Clarice generally. I don't think we're supposed to be, sure. But in that moment, I was really frustrated. I was like, and Annabeth is 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 freaking out. She's like, "Shut up! Like you're so dumb." Right. And Clarice is like, and then she gets tied up. She's like, "Let me go, so I can beat you up." And what an uninsightful thing to say. I don't know. Unless I mean, I guess it could incite uh, anger, but there is no insight. I don't know. I don't know what you expect from the daughter of Ares. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Um, um, so yeah, so Zinnia, I've got another because one of my favorite moments in the in the Odyssey, um, which we get here, is the island of Circe, mm-hmm. and one of my favorite passages uh, in the island of, of Circe is when Odysseus's men first roll up, right? That they, they roll up um, and they're, 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 they've learned to be cautious, right? They've, they've mm-hmm. had some encounters by this point. And they, they see, they, they first hear, I think they hear Circe um, first because she's singing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's singing at this loom. But as they get up, they, they see this house. Um, and I'm just looking at my... Uh, my my lobe with uh, Murray's translation, uh, and to to quote it, within the forest glades they found the house of Circe. This is in Book Ten, uh, built of polished stone in a place of wide outlook, and round it were mountain wolves and lions whom Circe herself had bewitched, for she gave them evil drugs. Yet these beasts did not rush upon my men, but indeed wagging their long tails stood on their hind legs. Um, and so we get this image of this house that is a house, right? It represents civilization, but it's sort of intertwined with the things that are wild mm-hmm. and it's inviting cause she's singing and it's civilized and domestic because she's weaving, right? And there's obviously 
connections to Penelope, um, or in this case, Grover. Um, and it's for me in the same way that Polyphemus and his island, you know, has aspects of civilization and, you know, is almost, as we said before, this idyllic environment, right? It's like a, you know, a, a Caribbean island and it's, it's gorgeous. Um, in the book, it blends sort of what is civilized and cultured with what is not. And it's that blending and that blurring of the lines between what is good, what is bad, um, which is even mimicked, I think, in the Cyclops, right? Uh, they're half, you know, they're half, you know, divine, half monstrous in the same way that Percy is half divine, but half civilized. Yeah. I, I wonder if you can speak more to the point you made about, you know, Polyphemus's island being a mixture of like idyllic and civilized. Because when I think of Polyphemus, I don't really see like what what is the civilizing element there again we talked about this in the last episode but there is this kind of like golden age depiction in the island Mm -hmm. of polyphemus even in the odyssey right here it's golden age because of the golden fleece but in the odyssey again you know absent of the golden fleece it is this kind of um you know wellspring of abundance like there's all this beautiful fruit it's the perfect place to raise sheep and goats you have an abundance of cheese mm-hmm. uh, as your as your children now. <laughs> no, um, so I'm 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 curious what you mean when you talk about the the civilizing element uh, on Polyphemus's island. Um, but I do I do take your point that yeah there is this kind of you know what is yeah the kind of halfway point and Cersei is a good example of that. There are lots of you know callbacks in the odyssey like i think when you see cersei you are obviously supposed to think of penelope um, but i think you also think of helen when you see cersei for the first time in the odyssey because you know famously when telemachus odysseus's son who the very beginning of the odyssey is concerned with when he visits the house of menelaus he's come back from the war has won back his wife you know he is you know plagued by you know, kind of PTSD as we would describe it in modern terms. And so Helen is drugging him um, to kind of keep him, you know, at bay and, and help him, you know, and people talk about whether or not this is malicious on her part or not. But, um, and again, we think about this also with Jason, right? He meets a witch, you know, who's famous for her use of, you know, pharmaca, her, her drugs, you know, Medea. And so there are definite like connections we can make within the Odyssey to other characters. And this idea of like, here is a home, but things are not quite right. Um, yeah. So I'm just, I'm, I'm flipping now through uh, my, uh, my copy of the Odyssey. Cause I remember, I remember listening of, to, or, to dwellings, but I was wrong. I was thinking that Cyclops had a society, but they're sort of uh, clearly described as lawless. Um, right. There, there are neighbors. Like, again, famously, right, we get this in the book too, this like nobody, you know, Odysseus plays with his own name in the Odyssey. Yeah. Um, because Odysseus sounds a lot like the Greek word for no one. Um, 
you know, and then the Cyclops' neighbors are like, who's attacking you? And he's like, nobody's attacking me. And they're like, well, then you're fine. Um, right. And it's like, ha ha. But, you know, the Cyclops lives near someone, but they don't live in a society. Yeah. And and, and here, just the first description, and this, this really, I hadn't remembered this this clearly, it really is a golden age society. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, so this is in book nine. Uh, thence we sailed on grieved at heart. Uh, this is after they leave uh, the, the Lotus Eaters. And we came to the land of the Cyclops, an insolent and lawless folk who, trusting in the immortal gods, plant nothing with their hands nor plow. But all these things spring up for them without sowing or plowing. Wheat and barley and vines which bear the rich clusters of wine. And Zeus's reign makes these grow for them. Neither assemblies for councils have they, nor appointed laws, but they dwell on the peaks of mountains and hollow caves. And each one is lawgiver to his children and his wives, and they have no regard for one another. Right? So it really, it isn't a society. Right. At all. Um, I guess I was thinking, you know, they have, they have food and they have cheese, and Polyphemus is a bad guest, right? Instead of, you know, but Odysseus is also a, or he's a bad host, but Odysseus is a bad guest because they go up to Polyphemus's cave and they just start eating stuff. Um, but then Polyphemus just wants to eat Odysseus's crew and he's, right. he bashes them. Um, and Homer describes the sound of the, the men being bashed as. And their brains leaking out onto the floor. Yeah. Do you remember it's how great. they're described? Huh? Do you remember the, the metaphor he uses to describe the bashing of the. No. It's like, it's like the sound that you make when you bash a puppy on the ground. Oh, yes. Horrible. Yeah. You got to read Homer. Homer's Homer's wild, um, vivid. Yeah. But Odysseus goes in and he violates Zinnia, but Polyphemus has already violated Zinnia, um, and they sort of outviolate each other. But Odysseus and, and part of the Zinnia relationship for the the guest, right? Is you're supposed to give something back, right? Right. And and if, if you have nothing, it's a song or a story. But Odysseus gives in the Odyssey. Um, Polyphemus a gift of wine, mm-hmm. um, but you're supposed to mix the wine with water. Right, you're supposed uh, to cut it if you're if you're cultured. Uh, but Polyphemus doesn't know this, so he gets drunk. Right, um, and so he's undone by his un, you know, his lack of cultivation. Right, uh, but there's just this back and forth of who is a worse, who who's breaking Zinnia more, and I think at the end of the day, it's probably Odysseus. Right, I mean, I don't know. He 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 steals from Polyphemus. He he tricks Polyphemus. He blinds Polyphemus. He doesn't tell him his name. He lies about his name. Uh, I mean, I guess you could argue eating a bunch of Odysseus's men is. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know if we're supposed to side with Polyphemus in the Odyssey, but um, I mean, the, it's a fair point taken that Odysseus does not also live up to the expectations expected of guests either. Um, and you know, I, I assume part of that is like a question of like, how does a Greek behave in non-Greek society? I'm sure that's part of the kind of interest is like, can you have, can you have any sort of Zania when there isn't a host, when the host isn't showing kind of proper respect to the guest? Because in some ways the host is supposed to act first as I think about Zinnia and right, the guest is reciprocating um, to, to a certain extent. And there's an ex and there's an ex, you know, expectation that I extended hospitality to you in this instance. And if I ever visit, 
your home, you'll extend the same courtesy um, to me, right? So if you, you said we're not supposed to feel sympathy for Polyphemus in the Odyssey. I think elsewhere, though, in ancient literature, we we are supposed to sympathize with him, right? Because he becomes a, a figure in different genres, mm-hmm. right? Theocritus. Yeah. Uh, I think you know more about Theocritus than I do. Um, he writes, you know, these sort of love poems, right? He has, yeah. he has Polyphemus as this, you know, figure in love. Um, Lucian later tells us about sort of the love affairs of Polyphemus. He takes on this sort of cult status. I mean, it's interesting that he's, I don't know. I mean, do you, do you have a, a read on this? Why, why does, why does he of all people, this monster who defines lack of civilization um, and who tries to kill Odysseus? Why does, why does sort of Greek myth pick up his story later? And why do people care? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, part of it probably just speaks to like how memorable that scene is and just like, he becomes fixated in people's minds. I'm sure that's one reason why it gets picked up and translated. And I, I do think it's easy as a modern reader to feel sympathy for Polyphemus and be like, yeah, like you shouldn't eat people. That's pretty clear. <laughs> but, you know, here comes Odysseus just absolutely, you know, ignoring any sort of, you know, culture or way of being in this place. And again, to your point, right? These heroes, I think you said this in the last episode, these heroes kind of interrupt kind of the kind of ecosystems of these, you know, quote unquote monsters, right? Polyphemus isn't out here hunting heroes. He's just living a peaceful life on an island with his sheep and goats, eating some delicious cheese and, you know, waving at his neighbors from a distance, right? And enjoying the bounties of the earth and... You know, here comes Odysseus and Polyphemus doesn't act appropriately, but also it isn't an expectation that he he would. And what if he got to live a kind of peaceful life? Right. And, and I think, again, he comes to represent a good he, he just becomes the exemplar of a golden age. And what if Polyphemus wasn't monstrous? And what if he did just live this kind of peaceful, idyllic life? I think is kind of compelling. What if Odysseus never came? Would that the Argo were still a true? <laughs> would that, would that Odysseus, what if, would that no one had, you know, stolen from the cave of Polyphemus, right? But we get a different Polyphemus in Sea of Monsters. Yeah. Right? Because Polyphemus, and this is where the Golden Fleece comes in, Polyphemus uh, stole, the, I don't forget if he stole it, but he has it and he uses it to lure satyrs to his island so we can eat them. Right. Right. So we do have um, a more malicious, right? He's not just trying to mind his own business. He's actually, he's got like a, like a honey trap kind of set up. So do we read him differently in, in this and kind of along the same lines we have, you know, if, uh, if Polyphemus in the Odyssey, is the first version of Polyphemus. Then we get this like sort of Polyphemus redux in Theocritus and in Lucian, this sort of Polyphemus as a, a lover. I mean, we have Polyphemus 3.0 in uh, Percy Jackson because he's he's defined by 
romance. I mean, what he thinks is a romance. But he's also luring people so he can eat them. So, I mean, are we supposed to feel sympathetic? I feel a little sympathetic for him because he, he's trying to find a bride. Uh, and he's... I don't know if I feel sympathy for <laughs> Polyphemus in, in, in a Sea of Monsters. I do, I do wonder how much, you know, having the Golden Fleece is an intentional trap or one that is accidentally set that he is... Hmm happy with the result of got it um again i'm i'm unclear on that um you know get at us in uh at our email uh you know drop us a note if you if you have more insight but again it seems to me that again polyphemus has lucked into a really good situation this golden fleece means that his island is experiencing golden age and you get little treats of satyrs coming by um that you can snack on here's my question though he's a son of poseidon he still can't see from being blinded by mm-hmm. Odysseus, right? Trojan Wars, the 12th century, right? 1184. Uh, so we're now, you know, 3,000 years plus removed from Odysseus. Percy's always healed in the water, right? If Polyphemus just like went over to the water and like wouldn't the like power of Poseidon like surge through him? Or is that a different relationship? Because there is, right? Annabeth does set Percy straight when he he does have this moment of realization where he's like, oh, wow, uh, Polyphemus is my, my half-brother, just like Tyson's my half-brother, just like essentially everyone in Greek mythology is my half-brother. Sure. Um, but Annabeth is pretty clear, right, that monsters are different than heroes. Monsters are different than half-bloods. So do we see different rules applying? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, in the Odyssey, Polyphemus clearly has a line in a relationship with Poseidon because Poseidon responds and does, you know, punish Odysseus um, for his treatment of, of Polyphemus, you know, and that's what results in his, you know, 10 years wandering. Um, you know, in the Odyssey, there's a lot of, differences drawn between again there's a there's this famous phrase that i i was very curious about in college and spent a lot of time thinking about and researching like it's like um odysseus and his men are referred to oh and you know the greek world in general you know men who eat bread and these are different from the different civilizations that they interact with um and I was always curious in college, like, what does that mean? Like, why why call them men who eat bread? Like, what is the distinction here? And I think there's a couple of things, right? You know, it's a clearly a reference to civilization. You can't have bread without civilization because you need this kind of, you need, a, you know, agriculture to create bread. So there is this, you have to be out of the golden age to make bread. Um, and you have to have a civilization. Uh, but there's also a clear connection to sailing because bread is this, you know, staple that you're able to take with you on ships and like men who eat bread is also just a reference to these people, um, you know, sail the seas, you know, they built the Argo and they've built many Argos since, and they're always on the sea. And that, I think that's, you know, a clear difference in like the, like Polyphemus Polyphemus doesn't travel, right? He always stays on his Island. He always stays with his goats and his sheep and his, like his relationship to Poseidon. Does it extend to, the ocean 
you know, the, you know, the domestication of horses to, you know, these other things. No, not really. Like he's a son of Poseidon because how else do you get such a powerful creature if it's not descended from a God, but he isn't connected to the ocean um, or kind of the other kind of domains of Poseidon in the same way that like Percy is in the books or, you know, other heroes are connected with their, you know, divine parents. Yeah, I think, I think that's all right. I never thought about it that way. I like it. I mean, would you rather have cheese or bread? <laughs> I think I'd rather have cheese. I mean, I'd rather have both of them together. But I was I was thinking this morning about like everyone. Poseidon's the father of like everybody in mm-hmm. Greek myth. Um, and why is that? And I I think it it has to be that Poseidon, you know, as the god of the sea, and he's more than that, right? He's 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 a salt water god, but the the Greeks imagined that salt water rivers ran under the the land. Um, I mean, the water surrounds everything. Water is everywhere. Seawater is everywhere in the Greek world. Mm-hmm. And so he's the most ubiquitous, right? He's the most, you know, ever present of the, the gods. Um, so I don't know if that's why he keeps popping up um, or what is it? Because when you go through Greek mythology and you say, oh, who's the father of this person? Who's the father of that person? Who's the father of this golden sheep? The answer is invariably Poseidon, um, which is just interesting. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder if there's any connection to, you know, when Kronos castrates Uranus and throws mm. his genitals into He's the like sea. extra fertile. Yeah, there is just like this like kind of birthing out of the sea as like something that we see in, you know, Greek mythology. You know, in other mythologies, Greeks are borrowing that from, again. Mesopotamia and, and whatnot. So I, I don't know maybe if there's a connection there, right? The connection with horses, right? Horses are born out of like the waves, I believe, you know, and that's kind of, you know, the, the connection there. Um, yeah. I, I mean, that's a great question. I don't know. It's probably the, the answer probably is like, there isn't a singular reason why right. uh, it's probably multi. It probably, it probably varies quite greatly and it's probably speaks to the just, um, yeah, the kind of heterogeneity by which we cobble together a mythology from a bunch of localities. Yeah, it's all sort of artificially constructed. Right. So maybe this is a good place to to end this discussion, um, unless you have more to say. I'm curious, because I think we're going to... Have you seen the movie? I have not seen the second movie. All right. I've now watched the first movie. We, should we watch, talked about it. We should watch the movie. And I'm curious where Percy and his friends are going next because we sort of checked off the Odyssey. We've checked off Jason. We've checked off a lot of what Perseus, the hero, has done. Um, who does that leave? I mean, what what uh, heroic uh, stories are we going to get in books three, four, five? I mean, we know the Iliad is coming. And I'm excited for that because that is my my favorite. Um, I'm curious if there's engagement with Theseus's mythology more. That I'll be excited to see mm-hmm. if if they touch on that in the in the following books. Um, I don't know what are the myths that you want 
the series to to touch on more. I don't know. I like Theseus. I'm I'm fascinated by the stories of Crete. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which I think is where I think I think some of the books are headed that direction. And you know, Her- Heracles is also, I guess, perhaps the other like big like character whose mythology we haven't seen played out all that. But much. he mostly fights animals. It's true. And that's we, one thing that, I mean, we've seen, I guess we, we saw the Minotaur in the first book, right. but for the most part, I mean, I guess we've gotten the, the Hydra, but things like the Nemean lion or, I don't know. I mean, sometimes Heracles just like cleans out the stables. That's true. Um, which is, that would be interesting to see what that looks like in this, this series. Right. Yeah. And again, we, we have had the Theseus myth through the Minotaur, but again, we haven't engaged with the, the, probably more famous piece of the Theseus myth is the, the labyrinth yeah. where the mentor lives. Yeah. I feel like that that'll be, that would be interesting to engage with. It seems like kind of a thing that um, would be ripe for a middle grade book to engage with. And I'm, ex- I'm all for it. Absolutely. Well, dear listener, we've reached the end of our discussion of the Iliad. If you've, if you've enjoyed this, I don't think I could have any stronger recommendation than to go read the Odyssey for yourself and to leave us a review. Um, Not in that order. Yeah. Leave us a review first and then pick up a copy of, of the Odyssey um, to, to, you know, delight yourself with. Um, And, Send us an email at allroadspod at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about the show, what we got wrong, if there's anything that you'd like us to cover in the future. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.